Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, we can hear you, we can see you, we can respond to you through your word. Father, as we look at Philippians 3 this morning, would you move, would you speak to us, your daughters, your sons? Would you lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit? Lord, move me out of the way, and would you just speak? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you're on uh, Apple News or Facebook or the Gram, I don't know if the kids say that anymore, probably not. It's probably something different. The Instagram, if you will. Uh, you've probably seen, in fact, I know you have seen and heard some really ridiculously prideful and self-promoting statements. You've seen the posts, uh, Kanye West, Instagram stars, that's interesting, uh, Johnny Manziel, Baker Mayfield. There are these people uh, made famous by whatever, that, whatever it is that they're doing, but they've got this bravado and this confidence, which really is just pride and self-promotion that the world says is good. Um, they get there because of the things that they do well, the way that they look, and or their family name. If you can throw a football for 40 yards to a guy that's really fast, you will get a big contract from the NFL, and you will get a million followers overnight on Instagram. If you can string together some words that rhyme, then you can get on some transcendent plane wherein you become a sort of self-consecrated deity, and if you have ears to hear, you know who I'm talking about there. If you grew up with the right last name in New York City, you are guaranteed power, position, and fame, just like that. And it's actually good and right to brag about it. This level of pride isn't new. Frederick Nietzsche, the 19th century atheist philosopher, said this, there cannot be a God because if there were one, I would not believe that I was not he. Okay, Freddie, all right. <laughs> 500 years before him, King Alfonso X of Spain said, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. <laughs> King Alfie, all right. So what we see on Facebook and Instagram isn't new. Ecclesiastes is exactly right. There's nothing new under the sun. This level of pride, self-promotion is nothing new. We can trace these absurd statements back to the garden, and in fact, humans have been puffing out their chests in pride ever since our genesis. And I think we can all agree that this type of confidence isn't commendable or to be emulated. But can we be confident? Are we supposed to be confident? Is confidence bad? And I would say the answer to that is, Yes and yes. Yes, confidence can be bad, but we are supposed to be confident, church, but not as the world says. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Uh, in your blue Bibles, that's page 981. And we will start chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is actually safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And so Paul comes right out of the gate and he says, watch out. Stay clear of. Uh, Anna now knows Hati Hati from Bali. Just signs everywhere that basically say, careful, careful. You're about to fall into a ditch or whatever. There's, there's something there that is dangerous, so watch out. So Paul says this. He's spitting fire. He's charged. He's not mincing words. And what's really interesting here in the Greek is that he intentionally assigns these three monikers. Um, one uh, is, well, sorry, all three of these terms in the Greek start with the, the character kappa or K for us. He's making this warning even more emotionally charged because he's employing alliteration. So, lest we didn't know, Paul is actually a Baptist preacher. So he's got three points. They all start with K. Uh, and so he calls them kunas, kakusergatas, and katatome. Kunas, dogs. This is ironic because it was a term usually employed by Jews in reference to the Gentiles since they were ceremonially unclean. So Paul is not mincing words here. Kunas. These aren't fluffy house pets. These are Bali dogs. Scavengers that eat garbage. Yeah, gross, huh, Libs? Yucky. These are evildoers. These are workers of evil. Kakus ergatas. And then lastly, he calls them katatome, mutilators. Other translations that you might have would say false circumcision. And there's this play in words that Paul uses where he doesn't use the word for circumcision, which is peritome. Uh, He uses katatome, which basically means to stab, to chop, to mutilate. So Paul here is using very precise language. He's offering the sternest of warnings possible against this group of people. So the question for us is, who are they? Who are these dogs? Who are these evildoers? Who are these mutilators of the flesh? Well, the Judaizers uh, were a group that was infiltrating the church. They were insisting on adherence to the law, uh, particularly in this instance on the outward rite of circumcision. They were melding the old with the new. Uh, Judaizers refers to Jewish Christians who sought to induce Gentiles to observe the ceremonial law. They sought to Judaize the gospel of Christ. Acts 15.1 talks about them. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this group is insisting on circumcision not to make men acceptable to Jews like Paul did with Timothy in Acts chapter 16, but rather to make them acceptable to God. Do you hear their message? Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. So what Paul is saying, and the reason why he is so fiery with his language is he's saying this is completely unacceptable. It's completely unnecessary because Christians are already circumcised. How? In their hearts by faith. Their hearts are set apart for God, which is what circumcision was supposed to symbolize in the Old Covenant. 
It's being set apart. The covenant people of God are set apart. And so now you've got this group that's coming in and saying, yeah, Jesus, sure, but you also have to be circumcised. Jesus, yes, but there's this other thing that you have to do. Paul talked against this pretty much in every one of his letters. In Romans chapter 2 at the end, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew, a covenant person in God's economy, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So by insisting on the right of circumcision, this group is teaching that faith in Christ Jesus is not enough. The formula was this. Jesus plus adherence to the law equals confidence before God. Jesus plus, specifically in uh, Philippi, equals right standing before God the Father. Do you see it? The Judaizers had the wrong formula. It's Jesus plus equals salvation. Paul says no. I think if... uh, I think Paul might have went to fisticuffs over this one, actually. Uh, His language is so fiery and so charged. We'll see it in a little bit, uh, some of the language that he continues to use. He's saying this is not the gospel. This thing that you're teaching, that you have brought into the church, is not good news. Because what you've said is Jesus has fulfilled the law, he's broken our chains, but you got to put some more chains back on. This is not the gospel. This is not good news. So now Paul doubles down on his argument. He lays out his very Jewish resume, by the way. I mean, this is as Jewish as it gets. If they think that they have reason to put confidence in the outward forms, Paul has even more so. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which is pretty special if you're of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's as Hebrew as it gets. As to the law, a Pharisee. It's about as good as it gets in regards to the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, completely blameless. Um, he stepped up and he called a shot. He knows exactly what he's doing with these folks. He's reminding them about the pure gospel. So for us, though, here's the deal. Today, we hear his resume. doesn't mean a whole lot to us, if we're honest. Mostly because we're not a nation wherein church and state is married. Uh, but 2,000 years ago, for Paul to have these credentials and this resume, it wasn't just impressive. It it opened every single door in town. He was the Hebrew of all Hebrews, okay? Uh, For us, maybe it's like you're, you're strolling around downtown. You're at the Alamo. You see this dude in a really sweet, uh, handmade, hand-stitched guayabera. 
you introduce yourself to him, you figure out that his great, 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 however many greats, uh, was uh, Davy Crockett, okay? And he had recently just been married to uh, the Admiral's daughter, David Robinson. I don't know if he has a daughter, but just in your mind's eye, just imagine this. We're at the Alamo, Davy Crockett, somebody, grand, 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 right? David Robinson's daughter, and they just had a baby boy that they named Tim Duncan Popovich, okay? <laughs> like, this dude is as puro as it gets, okay? This guy is San Antonio, okay? Paul the Apostle is as Hebrew as it gets. What's the point? What Paul is saying is that his resume, his credentials, even as impressive as they are, that such merit is actually demerit. Such merit is actually demerit for him. One commentator put it this way, when we view it like this, it often hinders, if not precludes, a person from coming to know Christ. Brass tacks for us, what does it mean? What are the outward rites in our day? It's obviously not circumcision. Again, our country is not wedded to our religious beliefs and customs. Uh, circumcision is no longer tied to a religious point of view as far as Christians believe. So it's not circumcision. This isn't the outward rite that we are supposed to be hearing right now. We here in San Antonio can't understand what it's like to have a Judaizer come into our midst and mess up the gospel. I think what we can understand, though, is if someone comes in bringing legalism, religiosity, and adherence to some outward forms. It's basically any time an outward form, a religious spirit, a custom, something takes precedence over the gospel. When I was at A&M, uh, which is like Christian Disneyland, um, it really is, uh, or it was at least. Uh, I don't know if you can understand this, but um, like when, when I was there, there was this bubble in which there was an Aggie Christian code to be followed. Here's a couple of points of the code. Number one, you had a quiet time every day, preferably for 30 minutes at least. Uh, if you were super Christian, it was 45 minutes to 55 minutes. You obviously had said quiet time before your first class, because if not, then you are putting academics above Jesus, okay? Uh, the best thing to do as far as your love life is to date Jesus. Uh, yep, got broken up with, because uh, she wanted to date Jesus more than me. Okay, I get it. <laughs> If you do get a date with a girl uh, as a male at A&M at my time, it was pretty much, it had to be, she had to be in Philam or Aggie Sisters for Christ if you were going to obey the strict Aggie Christian code. Um, and the feeling was that if we strayed, if we went out of bounds even just a little bit, that God was mad at us. Now, if you didn't live through it, you can't understand it. But I kid you not, this is what it was like. If 
me or my roommates fell into sin, there was an immediate repentance that wasn't repentance. It was works. It was, man, I missed my quiet time on Tuesday, or I had it in the afternoon on Tuesday. Tomorrow I'm gonna get up at five. I'm gonna sit in my prayer closet. Like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not dating any girls this week. It's only Jesus, right? There was this code and if you broke it, the feeling was God is mad at me, God doesn't accept me, I'm not in right standing with him. Now I realize this is a very small part of the population that would understand that. For others of us, we grew up in uh, church contexts where the when you were baptized and confirmed, the how long you served on the vestry or the elder team, the how many times you have done missions trips, like all these things start to accumulate and if we're honest, we put them on our resume. Well, God is happy with me because I haven't missed church in three years. Um, I haven't committed any really big sins for five years. I've been on the elder team for this long. I've been serving in this capacity. And what's happened is that our formula is messed up. Anytime we have this formula, Jesus plus blank, the gospel has been perverted. The gospel has been perverted when we add anything to Jesus. Verse 7, Paul tells us where true confidence comes from. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All those things, his resume, his birthright, his accomplishments, he accounts them as loss. Why? Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing God is very different from working for him. Knowing God is very, very different from working for God. Uh, when I was at A&M, Christian Disneyland, I heard uh, a pastor preach on Romans chapter 3, and it changed my entire life. Um, living under this strict Aggie Christian code, uh, he was preaching through the book of Romans. It took him like 47 years because he was a Bible church guy. Um, and something happened in me. I was freed up. I stopped. I, I realized that I was... Um, I basically thought I was righteous before him because of what I did and what I didn't do. Like the list of the do's and don'ts, I was pretty good at. And I actually found that I counted those to my credit before a holy God. And it seems so ignorant now. Like, are you serious? Like, you have nothing to stand before him on your own merit, right? But then I, I, I was such a good Christian kid at a great Christian university that it just felt like that's what I was doing. Um, and so what Paul is saying here is my resume, my birthright, my accomplishments, I count them as loss because there's something that's worth more. You see what it is? Knowing Christ Jesus. It's knowing him. 
it's not obeying him as much as it is knowing him. Out of knowing him, we obey, right? We don't obey in order to know. We know first, and then we obey out of that obedience once we know who we are, right? So Paul is saying that knowing Christ is of more value than anything else because it is saving, it's personal, and it's transforming. This personal gnosis, this intimate knowledge, is so exciting to Paul that he considers everything else as loss. You don't hear that said about other religions that are do's and don'ts. Like no one gets excited in their, no one gets all stoked about lists, do they? We just obey, we adhere, we go through the motions, and that's religiosity. And that's not what Christ is inviting us into. The last part of eight, he starts to get really strong with his language here. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. This is the Greek word skubala, uh, which actually means um, excrement. Uh, and he uses this word very intentionally. What he's saying is, for Christ's sake, I've lost everything. So he lost all of his Jewish Jewishness. Uh, he was no longer the, the cool guy in town. He was no longer the Hebrew of Hebrews because he wasn't obeying to the strict adherence of the law. He's saying, I consider the loss of those things, and even before that, when I had them, I consider them as waste. In the Old Testament, one of the prophets describes our righteousness as filthy rags. And those aren't the nicest rags it's, it's a sign of dishonor in the same way that this word is used for something that's dishonorable, right? So what Paul is saying, all the best that I brought to the table is worthless. It's dung. A dear friend said it this way, a life of lists isn't only wrong, it gets in the way of your relationship with Christ Trying to earn God's approval is exhausting. If and when we feel insufficient, it's because we are. Like when you get to the place where you realize that you are insufficient, that you don't have what it takes before holy God, then you understand the pure gospel. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. That sermon I was telling you about came from Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 19, Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be held accountable, silenced. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or saved in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And here is where the break-free moment happened for me. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been, made, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the, pro, uh, the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. 
So Paul is just, like a great lawyer, has just spent a lot of words to indict the entire world, regardless of religion or race, in chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3. And then he says, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. The righteousness of God through what? Obedience, perfection, adherence to the law. What does it say? Through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. The way to know Christ is not to work for him. But there is work for us to be done as humans as it relates to our salvation, and it's this. Believe. Your job, my job, is to believe on him who was crucified. That's it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the good news. The reason why Paul was using such explicit language is because the gospel was being perverted by these people. So like a good shepherd, he brought out his crook and he starts just getting him around the neck. And he reminds his people of what good and right doctrine is. That to have confidence is good if you have the right confidence. Uh, I've heard, I've heard uh, some people say, well, I can't stop sinning, uh, so I don't really pursue the Lord. Welcome to the club. Well, I don't really go to church because I don't go to church consistently. Well, there's a logic issue there. We could fix that one real quick. But really what it comes down to, what I hear in these pastoral conversations is I, dot, 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 I, dot, 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 I, dot, dot, dot. And what they're saying really in their heart of hearts is, I don't think I have the merit to come before God. Great. Now you understand what Christianity is. You and I do not have what it takes. You have nothing in and of yourself that makes God pleased outside of his son when it relates to our salvation. So if we go back to, uh, to verse one, it's really interesting what he says. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's actually a safeguard for you. So what Paul seems to be saying here is that the way to protect us from legalism, uh, the thing that protects us from what Bishop Matt was teaching about last week, murmuring, complaining against God, is to rejoice in the Lord. This is a way in which we turn our eyes away from ourselves and turn our eyes onto him. Why? Well, it's hard to think that your righteousness is anything when you're rejoicing in what God through Christ has done on your behalf. When we remember that this world isn't our home and that even now he's preparing a place for us. 
And as we go to the table uh, this morning, here's our invitation. Here's where the merit happens. The reformers cried, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not your obedience, not how many quiet times, not whatever boards you're on. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Unless we think we are immune to these things, uh, I want to remind us of a couple of chapter threes. So we've got Paul's chapter three in Romans, where he's saying, all this stuff you're held liable for. Uh, In Galatians chapter three, he says, who has put a spell on you? Having begun by the spirit of God, are you now trying to perfect yourself by adherence to the law? Here in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law by how many quiet times I have, by how many mission trips I've been on, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Jesus, um, as we come to your table this morning, Lord, let us remember that we don't have to chase after you so that we might just maybe be yours. Lord, we already are. Lord, let us remember that we are incapable, insufficient. to stand before you, holy God. But that in these last times that God has spoken through you, Lord Christ. Lord, that we see in your death, your burial, your resurrection, your merit, not ours, that we're safe, that we're free, that we're secure, that we're loved beyond measure. So Lord Christ, as we come to your table, remind us of these things. Holy Spirit, move. We confess our deep, deep need of you and thank you that by your passion, you have secured salvation for us, not the other way. We pray all this in your beautiful and mighty name, Lord Christ. Amen.